we have the lowest housing affordability in 37 years. The cost of money has pretty much tripled from the lows. However, we have to keep that in the context of overall history. Welcome to Bullish, where we talk about the journey and process to build ourselves and companies into multi-billion dollar people and brands. Currently, my business and investment funds have done tens of millions in revenue. And this is the documentation of the journey to scale to the billion dollar realm. All while we give back and do good in the world. My name is Bridger Pennington and welcome to Bullish. All right, boom people, welcome back to the show. Today we got with us an incredible guest, uh, Mr. Jason Hartman. Jason, welcome to the show. Hey, Bridger, it's good to be talking with you again. You know, the last time we recorded, that video got almost 900,000 views. So <laughs> <laughs> The people liked it. So here we are, we're back. It is end of August, 2023, recording this. We're gonna dive into macroeconomics, where the market is going, uh, what we're seeing in the gold market, silver markets with the BRICS nations, just macro currency wars that are currently going on. And by the way, I'll say this, Jason's an incredible human. He actually, Jason's spoken at our uh, one of our previous black card summits, actually came out to Utah, spoke it, and just wowed the entire audience. People have still talked to me about like, man, remember when Jason came out and spoke there? Then we had you at Fun Launch Live as well, former speaker of Fun Launch Live, which did you did incredible on stage as well. So Jason is an incredible podcaster. On, and the last thing I'll say before we dive in, so my, a lot of you guys know my dad, a uh, big time fund manager now retired for years and years and years. He's been like, Bridger, before I ever met Jason, he's like, you got to go listen to Jason Hartman. This guy is one of the sharpest people. And this is coming from my dad, who's a multi-billion dollar fund manager saying yeah. Jason Hartman is one of the sharpest people I listen to. He's like, I've religiously listened to this guy. So it's an honor for me to have you on the show today, Jason. With that though, we can, we'll, we'll get past all the semantics and all the lovey-dovey here. I just, we, people want to know what's going on in the market. Right now, you yeah, know, uh, we have very interesting indicators. Personally, I'm very bearish just because it's hard to raise rates five and a half percent and nothing breaks, right? You would yeah. think like everything should be breaking now, but I want to get your take on current state of the market and where we're at. Yeah, Bridger. So it's, it's an excellent uh, point. And uh, look, we have the lowest housing affordability in 37 years. The cost of money has pretty much tripled from the lows. However, we have to keep that in the context of overall history because the question is always compared to what? Mm. If you compare things like so many people are doing to the COVID era a couple of years ago, you're gonna have a lot of blind spots because that was the outlier. That was not normal. It was a total anomaly. Uh, COVID was a very weird era. So let's not compare it to that, but let's go back further and look at a bigger piece of history. You know, uh, I'm sure everybody listening has been to several museums in their life. And you know, when you go to a museum and you walk up to a beautiful painting, you can look at it from four inches away and you will see the brush strokes. You will see all the detail. And if you back up about a foot, and maybe you're a foot and a half away, you're gonna see some more. And if you back up four feet or six feet, you're gonna see the big picture, right? Mm. And so we need to look at the big picture rather than just the brush strokes. And that's what I hope to help people do today so, with our interview. Yeah, back um, us up a little bit. So what what time periods do you are you looking at? Kind of give us a range. I, I think that's a great point. People look so close. So what do you typically look at? Where do you start when you're looking at this? 
Oh, it's a great question. And, you know, with I, I developed an index that I've presented at two of your live events called the Hartman Comparison Index or the HCI for Which short. Which I love this, by the way. It was it like wowed our audience. I loved I love this whole thing. Yeah. Get into it. Yeah, it answers what I say is life's most important question, which is compared to what? You know, mm -hmm. that's that's the most important question in life. Uh, because when we compare things, we understand them much better, right? Uh, and we do this. We're comparison beings. We go out into the marketplace, whether it be uh, the marketplace for a house or a, a new car or a TV or a mate. Okay, we go into the marketplace and we compare things. And the only way we really know the value of anything is by comparing it to something else. And that's what the index does. So in terms Which of- Which I love, all, I'm gonna interrupt you for a second. My dad says this at length. He goes, a lot of people don't like the US dollar, but compared to what? Exactly. Compared to yeah. Bitcoins, it's doing okay. Compared to UN, it's doing all right. Uh, you don't like you know, the, where you live. Well, compared to what? You don't like your religion that you're a part of. Well, compared to what, you know? And so I, I love this whole concept. My dad, he, he brings us up at the dinner table multiple yeah. times. And he, we always quote Jason Hartman at the dinner tables, just so you know, you have a spot at the table for the Pettigrew household. <laughs> I love it. But uh, sorry, keep going on this. So so get, get us a little bit deeper into compared to what here. Sure, sure. So, so you asked the time periods, right? So the, the Hartman Comparison Index goes back to 1970, and it's hard to get some of the data points. There's about 40, I think 42 data points in the index now, uh, but it goes back to 1970. And we're not gonna talk about the index today so much because just for time uh, purposes, but you know, more on that on, on my show or whatever. Uh, but, um, you know, most of the time today, we're just going to go back several years, depending on what we're looking at and look at some good comparisons that I think will be very helpful. So when we started, I mentioned that the uh, housing affordability was the lowest it's been in 37 years, Bridger. Mm. And um, one of the things investors need to keep in mind is while everybody is so myopically focused on housing prices, we really need to remember that income property is a multi-dimensional asset class. And it's not just about the price of the house, it's about the yield on the house. So as investors, we must adjust our strategy, just like you teach all of your students in managing their funds. You need to adjust your strategy. Sometimes you're in a capital gains market. Hmm. Sometimes you're in a yield market where you're just looking at return on, on, on investment, return on income, right? And so uh, that's, that's the thing we need to understand. Mm. And when prices soften or when housing affordability declines, then people are forced to stay in the renter pool. And so long as you have either an increasing population, which by the way is a misnomer uh, because the important part of population growth is not how many people are having babies today. It's how many people had babies 25 and 30 years ago. Hmm, that's yeah. household formation. And that's the most important part of, of understanding the housing market is lagging it back by about a generation because that's the household formation time. And is the U.S. And, a little bit of an outlier there with people Im immigrants coming to America as well, net inflows? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely adjusting for immigration is also important. Um, but another thing, and this is another thing that demographers and economists are missing constantly. Uh, of course, you are a millennial and uh, I am a Gen Xer. 
And as uh, millennials, a lot of millennials like to complain about the world the boomers, their boomer parents left them with, right? In fact, there's a meme for it. You've all heard it. Hey, boomer, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's, it's kind of blaming the, the boomers for, you know, the economy, the debt they left with them. And, and, you know, the millennials have a right to complain about some of this stuff. But if you really understand it and you peel back the layers of the onion, the millennials are not doing badly at all. They're just on the slow life plan. So every statistic you look at for a millennial versus their baby boomer parents has to be lagged by about six years. Mm. Because if, if your baby boomer parents owned a nice house when they were 30 years old, you're going to be 36 by the time you get to own that same nice house, okay? So just understand millennials are doing everything more slowly. They're forming households more slowly. They're getting married more slowly. They're just taking their time with life. And that is the reason uh, largely for a lot of these complaints that people aren't adjusting for six years difference. Hmm. So, and when you adjust for six years, that's pretty much on, on most categories, about a six-year lag gets them equal to baby boomers. Is that correct? It does. It does. The millennials are doing much better than they think they are, and most people think they are. Now, one complaint, and this is a righteous complaint, uh, that they would have is they'll say, yeah, but my baby boomer parents didn't have all this student loan debt. They're right. College has become a total scam, unfortunately. Mm. Uh, you know, in the 1970s, when the government started insuring student loans, the, the ability to get those loans massively increased. There was a huge tsunami of liquid, liquidity coming at the college market. And what did colleges do naturally? They just raised their prices. And uh, and so college yeah. tuition is, is a complete ripoff, okay? Yeah. I mean, no <laughs> one can deny that. So, uh, but uh, the baby boomer parents, they didn't have the student loan debt, but guess what they did have? They had children. Mm. And children are very expensive. Their millennial kids are having fewer kids and they're having them much later than their parents did. So we've got to just equalize for all this stuff to yeah. understand what's really going on. Well, I like that mindset too of, I, I mean, I just, me and you both can talk about this at length, but the victimization mindset never serves anybody, even if it's true, even if you are a victim, it just, that mindset will never serve you across the board. And I like equaling it out. Hey, it's actually just a six year lag as a generational difference. Hey, hey, what's going on people? Hope you're enjoying the show. This is Bridger Pains in here. So if you like the show so far, if you're more of a visual learner, we actually post almost all of these to YouTube. So if you go look me up, Bridger Pennington on YouTube, we're there. We actually have a ton of different content on funds and different business structure and strategy stuff that we kind of don't touch on on the podcast, but are more visual based stuff. So if you're a visual learner, go to YouTube and go check me out, Bridger Pennington on YouTube. With that, we'll get back to the show. Thanks guys. So back to the yeah. original question though, let's talk markets right now. What are you seeing? And, and you've talked about the time length. So give us, kind of give us this picture of what you're seeing in the markets right now. Sure, sure. So uh, I, for those uh, listening only on audio, I'm sharing my screen right now and I'm gonna just show some things. We'll try and explain them for you uh, if you're not able to see this uh, and you're not watching the video. So look, the first thing to understand is that most people expected uh, mortgage delinquencies to go way up. And with when you literally triple the cost of mortgage money, right? I mean, we, we've seen rates go from a low of about, what, 2.6% to now triple that. 
Okay. Yeah. Uh, and, and we just have not seen the amount of foreclosures that people have predicted. In fact, the default rate is the lowest it's been since 1979. People are finding their homes to be extremely affordable. How, how is that I happening know. though, Jay? Like how, like how, <laughs> tell me how. Hold on, okay. I'm gonna show you. Okay, okay. okay. So, so let's look at some more stuff. So this is a chart from the FRED website, St. Louis Federal Reserve, everybody uses FRED, of course. Okay, this is mortgage debt service payments as a percentage of di disposable personal income. And as you can see, from the early 80s to present day, the mortgage debt service, in other words, your mortgage obligation on a house, is extremely low. In fact, the only time it was lower than this was during the COVID era that we previously mentioned. Mm. At all other times since the early 1980s, mortgage expense as a percentage of disposable personal income has been dramatically higher. That obligation today is much lower than it's been. And what we have to understand is there is this huge lock-in effect. Uh, and I talked about this in 2020 when nobody was talking about this. I was talking about this, how, how people would not be willing to give up these extraordinarily cheap mortgages. Mm. Because now, if you think about where we are now, people have 28 years left on the lowest interest rates in are you ready for this? Literally, I kid you not, I'm about to say this, it's gonna sound like a crazy statement. They have the lowest rates in 5,000 years. Yes, hmm. there are interest rate charts, Bridger, going back 5,000 years. Don't believe me? Wow. Read a great book by the late David Graeber. It's an excellent book. It's called Debt, The First 5,000 Years. I hmm. really recommend that book. Unfortunately, he passed away. I did not get him on my show uh, before he left us, but uh, the, the book is really quite interesting. So, so read that book. But just understand that we have- So these have people have locked in really low rates and they're, they're, I'm not, like I have a really low rate. I have a 2.6 on my house and I'm like, honey, we're never leaving this house. Or if we do, we're gonna keep this house forever and just go buy another and, house. And make it a rental. And make yeah. it a rental. Cause th there's no way I'm getting, that mortgage is more valuable to me than, than any, like anything else you could offer me on that property. You, you, we're going to look at some inventory statistics in a moment because most people thought and predicted that inventory would rise as rates went up. Mm. But what they don't understand, it's the exact opposite is true. Think of it like a bond. I mean, you and many of your listeners understand the bond market, okay? And the bond market is a um, like a contraindication. When interest rates go up, bond prices go down. And when bond prices go up, interest rates go down, okay? Mm -hmm. So uh, those are, those are non-correlating because the bond becomes less valuable in a higher rate environment and mm -hmm. more valuable in a lower rate environment. The same is true with existing mortgages. All of the millions of people, now let's talk about how many, okay? There's about 140 million housing units in the United States. 25% of those people with mortgages have a mortgage at or below 3%. 65% of the people with mortgages, and I'll tell you why I'm pointing that out in just a moment, have a mortgage rate at or below 4%. 
They have 28 years left on those ultra cheap mortgages. But guess what? 42% of the country has no mortgage at all. Now, Bridger, wow. there is one ingredient, one critical ingredient that you absolutely positively must have if you want to have a housing crash. This is the ingredient you cannot do without. There can be no housing crash without this ingredient. And that is millions of distressed sellers. These sellers are the complete opposite of distressed. Hmm. They are incredibly comfortable and they know, even if they don't understand finance, they just intuitively know in the most simplistic way that their mortgage has become an asset. Yeah. It has become more valuable the higher the interest rates go. If the Fed raises rates and this continues and say mortgage rates go to 11%, God forbid, okay, but say they do, all of these existing mortgages will just be more valuable. Yeah. It will not be less valuable. So the 42% um, of people, is that people that own their home outright or and or rent? Is it include free, renting? No, people that that's just not don't renters, have a mortgage that's at all. free and clear free and clear owners with no mortgage at all. Okay, so 42% okay. of homeowners own their house free and clear. Yes, so wow. think about it. It's wow. very hard to go into foreclosure when you have no mortgage. Yeah. It's very hard to go into foreclosure when you have an, an uber cheap mortgage. Hmm. Okay, see, people need to understand that the inventory, the the vast majority of the country either purchased or refinanced a home during the COVID era, and they got those super low rates. And what people don't understand is that they think, okay, housing is so unaffordable right now. They're right. It's the lowest affordability in 37 years. Mm. But that's not the issue. The issue is the people that got their mortgages two years ago. Their mortgage is incredibly affordable. They're not in distress. They're in the complete opposite of distress. In fact, they know if they had to move, the rent they would have to pay or a new mortgage they would have to pay would be a lot higher yeah, than the yeah. payment they have now. So they're not leaving. They're gonna keep that mortgage because they know it's super valuable. Here's an example, Bridger, okay? Uh, look at what we have here. We have 2021 and the median mortgage payment was $1,000. Now, as of, well, sorry, last year, this chart only goes up to last year. As of last year, the median mortgage payment was more than double that, just over $2,000, all right? So, but think of it, it's like rolling back the clock. Basically, all of these people that got mortgages during the COVID era, it's like they got to go back in time 10, 11 years and get the same kind of mortgage people got 10 or 11 years earlier, yep. even though the houses back then were much cheaper. Yeah, very interesting. That's the thing people have to understand. Okay, so you wanna look at some inventory? Uh, yeah, I've got a bunch of questions, but I'm gonna let you keep going and then we'll, we'll dive All in. Right. This is so interesting. And by the way, okay. I'm just gonna give Jason a shout out. He came on stage at our event, at least at the Black Card event, and you talked about, you said like inflation's coming. They, they are, quantitative easing is so much, inflation yep. destroys debt and you I, I i don't remember i think we had disclaimers not financial advice but i remember you on stage saying it might not be a bad time to get a lot of debt right now yeah <laughs> and ta-da we're a couple years out it's i don't know it's been two years two and a half years later and it's like yep. wow the people that followed that council 
have done pretty well so far, which is pretty cool. They have. Yeah. Well, think about it. The, so I teach a strategy that you know about and your dad knows about all too well. It's called inflation-induced debt destruction. Mm, yeah. And for 18 years, I've been teaching this strategy. I actually trademarked that term, uh, inflation-induced debt destruction. And what it means is that you borrow money based on today's value, but you get to pay it back based on tomorrow's value, which is lower in an inflationary environment. So just last year alone, Bridger, if people had $1 million in mortgage debt, maybe they own four little rental properties or a big house themselves, you know, they had a million dollars in mortgage debt. Just by the official numbers, not by the real inflation numbers, which are higher, but using the CPI or I call it the CP lie, okay? <laughs> <laughs> using the CP lie, you had 9% inflation, for example, right? It varies every month, I know that, okay? but. If you have a million dollars in mortgage debt, inflation basically paid off $90,000. Yeah, it's crazy. In a year. Yeah. I mean, think about that. That's like having a whole extra job that pays really well. 90 grand is not a bad job. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So that's free money. It's incredible. It yeah, really I love is. it. Yeah. So what are we looking at here? Okay. So inventory in the United States, housing inventory has increased now. All of the clickbait headlines on YouTube, all of the clickbait in the media, all the chicken little sky is falling, doom and gloomers have used this to say the market is going to hell in a handbasket. But the question is, compared to what? Okay, so the lowest inventory got during the COVID era was about 240,000 homes for sale. Now- Which is that, that yellow line right there, is that right? It's 2020? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, uh, so here, uh, and now we have almost 500,000 homes available and people will make headlines and videos and say, oh my God, inventory has doubled. The market is going to hell. But that's, that's just a lie. It's completely wrong because yeah. the question is not has inventory doubled from historic lows where we had this savagely unhealthy housing market where no one could get a house, where every house had massive multiple offers. That was an anomaly, that was an outlier. What we have now is we have inventory that is short. We have a shortage of about 700,000 homes. Hmm. That's what we need to be in a normal market. That's not even a buyer's market or what most would call a bad market. That's just a normal market. Yeah, we very have to interesting. more than double the inventory again to get to normal. What was it like? Do you have the data on 2007, eight, nine? No, I don't have it back that far. But remember, if I, I mean, I do on other charts, I just don't have it handy. I've certainly looked at it many times, but remember something, you always have to adjust the amount of inventory for the population. Mm, okay. Okay. And really to do it correctly, it's not for population, it's for household population. That's the really correct way to do it. Okay, remember we talked about that lag of 25 to 30 years earlier, yeah, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So that would be, you know, that's the way you have to adjust correctly. It's you have to look at inventory on a per household basis. With really. What's what's your thoughts on this, you know, inventory shortage based on millennials or even Gen Z not purchasing homes as much or later in life? This would be maybe some people say, well, yeah, if this was all boomers, yeah, they'd be buying at 30 years old. But a lot of millennials and Gen Zs are saying, I'm, I'm okay to rent. I'm okay yeah. to not own a home. 
What's your thoughts on that trend that's been happening the last decade? I think that that has been true, but it is not so true anymore. Millennials really are finally growing up and moving into the housing market in a big, big way. So, um, you know, again, there's that six year lag, right? Where millennials are six years behind schedule vis-a-vis -vis baby boomers. And, and so they are now, I mean, listen, millennials are not kids anymore. The oldest millennials, what, 43 years old now, yeah, yeah. okay? These are not kids, <laughs> okay? <laughs> you know, now we have to talk about Gen Z, okay? Yeah, we have to yeah. talk about the Zoomers, not the millennials anymore, right? Uh, so so uh, that is, um, so you know, that, more, that was more true. millennials coming in now buying home. homes just later. They're just doing it yeah. later. Gotcha. Absolutely. They, they are definitely moving into the housing market. Okay. So just look at this again. Okay. Here's another way to, to look at it. Here's the inventory and we have urgently low inventory. The inventory needs to be above this level. If you look at 2019, okay. Uh, you know, any of these years, 2018, 2017, right? Those were not bad markets. They were very strong markets. I mean, listen, my one of my main companies sells real estate. So we're on the front lines. I mean, we help investors buy properties nationwide and build their portfolios. Like we have one client that's got about 200 doors through us now. Okay, so this is what we do. We're not talking theory. I live this every day. Mm -hmm, I, yeah. I see it. I, you know, our investment counselors are talking to clients. I'm talking to clients they are buying properties and they're struggling to find good properties to buy it it's still a low inventory market yes admittedly it's not as low as it was during the crazy COVID era but it's still historically low okay, well this helps paint a better is. picture too of why median home prices you had that slide earlier have not fallen yeah. with the rate of the interest rates have gone up now maybe it's a lagging indicator maybe you know interest rates take yeah. time to trickle down through an economy but at least for me, I was well, like, God Man, knows it, we've had a year of high interest rates now. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, we've yeah. had it, you know, and I'm like, well, I, I, man, I, house prices should start coming down. They should be coming down. They're coming because just affordability has gone just on its head. But if you look at this chart, you go, oh, well, maybe it's because inventory is just still so drastically low there's, that those home prices are to buy. Up. Yeah. That's mm. the, that's the problem until there is a, now I, I heard an interesting CNBC interview the other day and these leaps in logic that people make are really scary. Okay. The, the expert on CNBC was saying that the housing is due for a correction. And he says, here's his theory. The Fed is going to pivot, and I agree with him. The Fed is going to pivot. Now, nobody knows exactly when, not even Jerome Powell, but the Fed will pivot and they'll start reducing rates. I think ultimately, Bridger, if I had to guess, although interest rates are impossible to predict, okay, I, I would think that rates are going to settle somewhere in the fives for mortgage rates. Okay. Yeah. And that means non-owner occupied mortgage rates will be in the sixes. And that's about where we're going to have is the sort of the new normal. Okay. Ultimately. But the Fed hasn't pivoted yet, and they're probably a ways away from pivoting. But here's his theory. When the Fed pivots, people will finally sell their houses because the delta between the rate they have and the rate they can get on a new house won't be so much. So they'll have an incentive to sell. That's, that theory is true. The problem is what he didn't tell you. And what he didn't tell you is when the Fed pivots and we see mortgage rates decline that much, we're going to see housing affordability go way up mm, yep. and it's going to light the market on fire again. 
if you lower interest rates in a no inventory market, you're going to get massive demand for such limited supply. Yep. So, just, you know, these theories from these experts just don't make sense. They don't really look at the whole picture. Hey guys, hope you're enjoying the show. If you're someone that wants to learn more about alternative investing, private equity, hedge funds, venture capital, we just created a brand new group on Discord that all of our Wall Street Rebels around the world are joining. It's called the Wall Street Rebel Insider Community. Go check it out down below. It's an amazing group. I go live in there. We do calls. I do all sorts of AI bots and terminal things and all sorts of cool stuff. So go check it out and get back to the show. Thanks guys. So what we are in right now is we are in a new home market, a new construction market, because real estate developers, home builders, do not have the lock-in effect. When they build houses, they need to sell them. They don't have 30-year debt at super cheap rates, yeah. right? So if we look at new single-family homes as a share of the overall market, we see here is where they were in the 80s, 90s, you know, 2000s. And then here was the bottom coming out of the Great Recession where just everybody stopped building, okay? Then we climbed back out of it and now we see new homes, new construction holding about a third of the overall market, which is insane. For people Usually listening, yeah, the average before was what, 10 to 20% in that range? 10 to 13%. Dropped. Dropped yeah. to 5% and then now up to about 35%. Yeah. 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 So, so the only market is the new home market because the resale sellers won't sell. They just aren't putting their houses on the market in any real way. Here's a good way to look at it. Um, everybody listening, close your eyes for a minute. And I want you to picture in your mind, your kitchen sink, picture your kitchen sink. Okay, and now I want you to assume that your sink has the drain, uh, you know, the stoppers in the drain, and it's about 35% full of water. And the faucet is on, but it's a trickle. And, you know, you didn't put the stopper in quite right, so some water is draining out. Here's what's happening. That describes the housing market. The faucet represents the new properties coming up for sale, and it's just trickling. There's a little bit coming on the market, but not very much. The faucet would be on full blast if people didn't have these cheap mortgages they won't give up, okay? But the faucet is trickling. The sink is about one-third full. Let's assume that a normal market, not a bad market, just a normal market, is a full sink. Not a, now, if it were a really bad market, a, a buyer's market, the sink would be overflowing with inventory, right? And the drain is a little bit clogged because before the drain was totally open and everything that would come on the market was getting purchased left and right. Now we see that the drain has like a 20% clog because there is less demand. Mm -hmm. The higher interest rates have definitely hurt demand and there's less activity, less sales activity uh, because of this. Uh, so, so that's where we are in the market. The sink metaphor helps people really understand what's going on. Interesting. Yeah. So you're not, you know, people have been looking at days on market or these properties aren't selling at least for the current prices. And a lot of there's total transactions have, uh, at least I've heard from my real estate friends have dropped significantly. Oh, they have over the yeah. last year, but you're saying it's still not as great as, as what people are panicking about. Well, let's examine that. Let's unpack that a bit, okay? Total transactions, first of all. The reason total transactions are down is 
you know, most people just think it's demand destruction caused by higher interest rates and lower affordability. And that's somewhat true. But mostly the reason demand is down is because there's not enough inventory, or not demand, sales activity is down, is because there's a lack of inventory. If there was more inventory, you could have more sales. I mean, look, if you own a shoe store and you sell shoes and you only have 30% of your normal selection and 70% or 65% of the shoe racks are empty and have no shoes on them, you're, you're not going to sell as many shoes. Mm, yeah. You need more inventory to but, sell more. But then you're also seeing days on market though. So those shoes are sitting on the shelves for longer and longer. Not very long. Is it not that historical long? I haven't level. seen the recent averages. I, I mean, look, days on market has increased. No one would deny that, but it's compared to what? I mean, compared to two years ago, of course it's increased. I mean, the cost of money has tripled. Mortgage payments are, are higher than they were, dramatically mm -hmm. higher. So there's no question uh, that housing affordability has taken a hit. Now, listen, all of the people with the predictions of doom will be right someday. There's no question, there will be a correction, okay? I want everybody to hear me say that. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Nothing lasts forever. I'm just saying this is where we are today. Mm. And we are not at that point yet. So Someday we will be there. Yeah, I love it. This is awesome, Jason. Now, just for time's sake, I'm going to switch gears for a little bit. I want to talk about a few other things. I want to talk about, well, and this all in relation to banks. How, to, how do banks, right now we've had an inverted yield curve over a year. The banking model does not work with an inverted yield curve. And a big, that's, a big that's product of banks- That's why I think banks, the pivot is required. Yeah. Sorry, say it again. Uh, that's why I think the Fed has to pivot because mm -hmm. they're going to kill more banks. We're going to have more banks breaking. So you, and you have this with, I mean, mortgages is a massive product for banks. They sell yep. and package and resell. If, we're, if we are seeing it, maybe whether it's a housing inventory or shortage, all the metrics you just talked about, but I'm, at least from where I sit, it looks like this is stretching banks. Additionally, they bought bonds that are now very much undervalued from what the, the market price they purchased them. They're just not marking a market to market. How does this, what you just told us all about single family real estate, dovetailing with inverted, inverted yield curve with bonds, decreasing value. Do you foresee a banking crash or crisis coming soon? Yeah, it's a great question. And first of all, I want to make the disclaimer, I'm not a banking expert. There are people who spend their entire careers studying banks and they still can't figure it out. Okay. Mm -hmm. But uh, from my layperson's point of view, let's just talk about SVB or Silicon Valley Bank. Yeah. Okay. The reason, the major reason, I mean, there are multiple reasons. Okay. But the major thing that hurt Silicon Valley Bank is they had these hold to maturity bonds mm. that they purchased when those rates were very low and those rates went up and the value of them went down. It's just what you described a moment ago and yeah. what we talked about earlier. Uh, so that uh, dramatically hurt them. And then Zero Hedge published this chart and it had a list of all the big banks mm -hmm. and it had the percentage of hold to maturity assets they owned. But what it didn't tell you was more important than what it did tell you, okay? And what it didn't tell you is the rate on those hold to maturity assets, the rate that that bank was, you know, holding them at, which wasn't necessarily as low as Silicon Valley banks. So those assets weren't underwater like theirs. And it didn't tell you the maturity dates, which usually are staggered and laddered. So they're all different. So, you know, you just have to like peel the layers of the onion back. Yeah. But 
overall, I think your question is a great one. And I think it speaks to the reality that the Fed will have no choice but to pivot because more things will break. And one of the big things that could break is the banking system, okay? And, 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 and also, we've got to remember, the government is a debtor, okay? And the government pays its debts at higher interest rates the longer this goes on yeah. because they have to make T-bills competitive with the overall market. So they have an incentive to see lower rates ultimately. So there is so much going in favor of lower rates and a Fed pivot, and there's one thing going against it, and that is inflation. Okay? Yeah. And I say what will always happen is the elite class will always sell out the poor and the middle class and let them suffer the inflation burden well they take advantage of what's called the cantillon effect which is an economist from like 250 years ago who talked about how the people closest to the money benefit the most and the the upper middle class and the rich and the elite class they all benefit from the money printer so mm. they'll let inflation run that'll be you know they're they're going to try to stave it off a bit and they have done you know a reasonable job of that yeah uh but um you know it's it's not it's gonna interesting on the on bank the bank side of thing yeah i i've i've talked to a number of funds that we work with there was a big reit last week that threw i mean there was a 18 property portfolio they just threw the keys of the bank they said we're good we don't want them anywhere yeah. they, they couldn't get values on them uh, I, I'm curious to see if commercial people, a lot of people have been saying the commercial real estate space is going to blow up because work from home in conjunction with higher interest rates, a lot of these companies aren't paying anymore. I guess we will see again with all these things with banks. Um, I've been trying to, again, like you said, though, it is hard to study banks and find out where, what is going on because banks are just so, because I've been trying to study and figure out how to like underwrite a bank and see if I could short it or not short where banks right. are at, but yeah. it's very interesting. And then they get bailed out and they have other lending facilities. There's always something you don't know that a bank is doing that you figure out like six months later that they are doing. Hey, hey guys, hope you're enjoying the show. Now, as you know, we don't run advertisements on this channel. We just spread this by word of mouth. So if you can, please rate and review the show. If it's benefited your life anyway, please drop that down below. I actually love reading them. I love seeing what people say and share and stuff. So if you guys can, if you've, this show has helped you in any way, shape or form, please rate and review and share this with a friend or two that may benefit their life. We do this just to help more people understand this game that we're playing. Thank you guys so much, and we'll get back to the show. Um, for sake of time, let's transition now. We're talking about interest rates. Uh, the BRICS nations, you know, huge threat to the US dollar. A lot of people online saying the dollar's dead. Um, you mentioned a second ago about rates, and I something me and my dad have actually we're putting in our, in our book, we've talked about it at length, but the concept that, yes, I, we, we know the Fed is, is trying to, help inflation and job growth. Those are two mandates, but overall their biggest job is to protect the number one asset of the United States, which is the U S dollar. That is their number one job. And so one theory is that they are, we are raising rates. Yes. For inflation, these other things, but to also show the world how strong the dollar is and the dollar, the DX, the dollar index has been incredible. We've had record high inflation and the dollar is ripping. It's been doing incredible. <laughs> All right. Again, compared to what? And yep. it's everyone That's says, what I was just going to say. <laughs> Compared to, compared to rubles, compared to UN, compared to Bitcoins, compared to the S&P, compared to gold, the dollar has done very, very well. It's up 11% over the last two years. Yeah. Uh, and so the, the one theory is that the Fed is going to continue rates high. And it's, yeah, the US might go into a recession or we might have some things, problems, but it's going to really decimate and hurt all these other economies on a compounded rate from degrees away, like you said, from the money printer. 
Uh, I'm curious your thoughts though on right now, these currency wars that are taking place with BRICS, the US dollar and, and banks. Okay, well, first of all, this may be a contrarian view. I have a feeling it is a contrarian view to yours, but um, folks, for, uh, for anybody listening or watching who is in fear that the BRICS are going to be a threat to the US or to the dollar, you are, it's just not gonna happen, okay? <laughs> Look, the BRICS are a bunch of dying countries okay that are meeting and they will nibble at the edges a little bit sure but are they a real threat not even close i mean it's you know the BRICS have to change their name because now they want to add saudi arabia yeah. and the uae uh which by the way those would be the best countries in the basket probably to add right uh as much as they're messed up in their own way but at least economically they have oil okay <laughs> so yeah. uh, they've got a real commodity that the world wants uh, and you know so does russia but it can't you know it can't sell it in an open market in any real way because of the sanctions so uh i i don't think that that is a threat i think the almighty dollar is going to be here a lot longer than many people think i think the u.s is going to be the hegemon for a lot longer than people think um you know it's it's easy to criticize the u.s uh, and and say that all of these things are going to happen, but it's just incredibly unlikely. Uh, we have the the most powerful military the human race has ever known, okay? And like you said, the thing we are going to defend is the dollar. Mm -hmm. That is our number one product, is our dollar. And still, everybody wants to come here, okay? And everybody's trading in the dollar. Uh, I mean, in, in developing countries, people, keep dollars under their mattress because they know that's their version of gold. Uh, and um, it's uh, it's going to be the reserve currency so for I, a very long time. I agree. I actually agree with you, which is contrary to most people. Most people are, the U.S. is dead. I, I actually totally agree with you. But I'm, I'm going to steal me on the other position of people that are listening. Yeah, sure. so I'll steal me on the opposite. Uh, with adding these six new countries, uh, global GDP from the BRICS nations is going to be about, I think, 31% of global GDP, which is about the same as the G7 countries. Um, the massive difference is population. It is a, yep. I think it's 40% of the world's population is the, in the BRICS nations. And these are merging markets. These are emerging countries that are going to increase as they get access to internet, like Starlink and access to blockchain, and all these new technologies, they will produce more GDP and grow as emerging markets. What would you say to someone that says that to you? I would say that is not going to happen. First of all, what makes anybody think these BRICS nations will actually get along with each other? <laughs> First of all, they all have separate interests. I mean, look at the European Union, okay? I was born in Europe and I study the EU a lot, right? You've got what, 27 member nations now or something? Yeah. They can't figure that out. That thing's gonna fall apart. I mean, the EU, I, I don't hold out a lot of hope for it lasting, uh, you know, uh, I mean, the United States has managed to stick together even through its own big civil war for what, 240 years and um, it's, it's just a much more united thing than the BRICS. I mean, think of the massive cultural differences of these BRICS nations. Okay, you've got, now they want to And geographical, they're spread over all the world. It's yeah. insane, like there's nothing bringing them together except their jealousy and hatred of the US. Yeah. Okay, like that's, that's all they got. Okay, <laughs> it's, it's, just not, it's just not a threat. Okay, it, I, I just, I don't know, look, I'm, and I'll make the disclaimer, I am not a geopolitical expert, okay? But that's just yeah. what I think. So 
central bank digital currency, is it happening or not, Jason? Uh, sadly, it is happening, and there's no way we're going to stop it. Uh, CBDCs are going to take over the world, and it's going to be very unfortunate because then they will be able to monitor and control our spending. Um, a lot of people don't think of spending as a big form of freedom, but your ability to spend and trade the way you want is maybe one of the biggest forms of freedom. And if they can uh, make money programmable, we are in for a lot of oppression. And this scares me greatly. This is very bad news for humanity uh, because uh, they, they can make your money not work at certain times of the day. They can make your money not work within more than a mile of your house. If there's a lockdown or a quarantine, uh, maybe if they don't like what you post on Facebook, uh, they make it so you can't buy internet access or cell phone with your, with yep. your money, right? Your digital money that's tied to your phone. Uh, so this, this is a big concern and CBDCs, they are definitely coming. Uh, and we need to do whatever we can to uh, work outside of that system. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And for time's sake, we'll get our, uh, well, I know you got to run. Jason, it's been phenomenal. We need like four hours to deep dive into all this stuff. Go listen to we Jason's show. Jason, what's the best, best place for people to find you, follow you? What's the best spot? Uh, my website is jasonhartman.com. Uh, my podcast, my YouTube channel. Uh, I'm also on the alternative video platforms where they don't censor like Rumble and BitChute. Uh, so just find me anywhere. Just look up jasonhartman.com or Jason Hartman and, uh, and you'll see me there. And um, just uh, thanks for having me on, Bridger. It's always good talking with you and happy investing to everybody. I love it, Jason. Thank you so much. Get that next appointment. We'll see you guys later. Bye.